From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. Lisa Mueller is an assistant professor of political science at McAllister College who specializes in comparative politics, political economy, and social movements, with a regional emphasis on sub-Saharan Africa. In addition to her work at McAllister, Lisa is a regular consultant and principal investigator for USAID and other American government agencies, having recently served as the U.S.-based country expert on an extensive USAID assessment of the African nation of Niger. She is spending the 2018-19 academic year as a residential fellow at Notre Dame's Institute for Advanced Study. Lisa and I spoke several months after Cambridge University Press published her book, Political Protest in Contemporary Africa. Our conversation started with what protests in different parts of the world, including the U.S., have in common, and what makes protests in sub-Saharan Africa different. I also asked her how social scientists go about studying something as dynamic as a protest and about her current project, which aims to answer whether the degree of cohesiveness among the protesters within a movement has any impact on their ultimate effectiveness. It's in framing this research question about cohesiveness that Lisa has referenced the words of both Abraham Lincoln and Tupac, so I knew we were going to get along just fine. Lisa Mueller, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I feel like this is a particularly interesting time to talk to you, as I feel like it's safe to say protests in the United States, they're really back in the mainstream consciousness again, especially these last couple of years. But I also imagine that there are some pronounced differences between what we know as protest in the U.S. and in the area that you've studied extensively in Africa. And I'm wondering what are some of the differences between what we think of what goes on in a protest and what is going on across the continent of Africa. Well, you're absolutely right. Protests are back, so to speak, in the United States. They're so hot right now. In fact, they're back everywhere, and they have been for a few years. I think today we tend in the United States to associate this current wave of protests with the post-2016 national election, when, in fact, Time magazine, that by some measures has the widest circulation in the world, named the protester Person of the Year in 2011. Oh, wow. In large part, as a response to Occupy Wall Street and the Arab uprisings. But there have been noticeable surges in popular movements in almost every corner of the populated world. And at first glance, these have local causes, but for the most part, social scientists have looked at protests in terms of their common denominators. What makes people rise up when they are upset about something? 
So to a certain degree, there is a lot that protests around the world share in common. Anyone who has a grievance has to figure out how to come together with other aggrieved individuals and coordinate and also overcome the temptation to free ride on the participation of others because even in the safest circumstances, protest is costly. Anytime I'm out in the streets, it's time I could be spending sitting on my couch, right? And in in less safe circumstances, I might be putting my life on the line to stand up for what I, I want. And so how do people overcome that fear to rise up en masse to advance their causes? That is a challenge that is not unique to any movement anywhere in the world. But your intuition is right to ask what might be different about protests in, say, the United States versus, say, a country in West Africa like Niger, one that I know fairly well. Well, as I explain in my book, something that distinguishes protests in sub-Saharan Africa, even vis-a-vis protests in North Africa in the Arab Spring that inspired that Time magazine story, is that, for the most part, protesters live at a subsistence level. Whereas protesters in the U.S., in Brazil, in Ukraine, in Egypt are more often from the middle class. And so they have an advantage when it comes to overcoming some of those collective action problems I referenced a moment ago. And this, for me, raised a fascinating puzzle. How do people living hand-to-mouth manage to overcome these collective action problems? And that's kind of where the story led me down this research path. Mm-hmm. I, so I guess what I would ask you there is, one, how do they manage to overcome those problems? And two, in your book, Political Protest in Contemporary Africa, I know one of your main findings as well was, as you just mentioned, the people who actually joining these protests tend to be from a lower socioeconomic class. The people organizing the protests are often still more middle class, and they have different motivations for why they're protesting. And I know this is going to take us to talking about your next project, but I also thought that was an interesting thing. I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, kind of these two forces at work in what's going on in these movements. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I want to avoid summarizing my entire book (laughs) in one response, but you hit the nail on the head. At first glance, protests in sub-Saharan Africa might actually appear fairly similar to protests in Tahrir Square or in uh, Zuccotto Park, is that what it was called, in, in, in Occupy Wall Street, because the individuals leading these protests and serving as their spokespeople, speaking into the microphones and interfacing with the media, are disproportionately middle class and therefore seem to resemble protest leaders in other contexts. But in sub-Saharan Africa, those are the minority activists making up the crowd. A crowd anywhere is diverse, but what distinguishes protests in sub-Saharan Africa is that the majority of the crowd is from the lower classes, and the people leading them are from middle classes, and therefore have quite different grievances oftentimes. If you have a middle-class Wage. if you have a reliable source of income, you have the leisure to pursue political ideals. And I don't think we often pause to consider what a privilege it is to take time in order to advance a cause, a political cause that means something to you. Gloria Steinem, the famous American women's rights leader, once said, every movement needs someone who can't get fired. Right, and, and that's true the world over. And so the people who are leading these 
political causes tend to be relatively privileged, but the gap between that level of privilege and the privilege of the rank-and-file protesters is wider in sub-Saharan Africa than it is in other places. Is it by being able to, I guess, have the people who are serving as the spokespeople, leaders of the movement, by having that, I mean, that higher degree of privilege, is that part of what allows folks who maybe don't have as much flexibility to then join in the movements because they're not having to sustain it maybe from an organizational standpoint is that they can basically show up and be a part of the movement and protest or is it something else that's helping them organize and and be there to raise their voices against whatever they're protesting no i think you explained it right there's a symbiotic relationship between what i call the generals of the revolution these protest leaders in sub-saharan africa and what i call the foot soldiers of the revolution Because the leaders have the resources necessary to overcome those two kinds of collective action problems I referenced a moment ago. First, there are coordination problems. This is about sharing the information necessary for people to rise up together. Where are we meeting and when? How are we getting there? And having access to effective communication tools is essential to overcome that coordination problem. Although information media, social media, social networks are proliferating in sub-Saharan Africa, it's still the middle class that is able to leverage that to the greatest effect. The thought leaders, you might call them. And so, yes, on the one hand, they provide the tools of coordination. The middle class protest leaders also provide the tools of cooperation. And cooperation requires more than sharing information. This requires incentives and sometimes pressure or coercion to help people stop free riding, to allow people to overcome their individual fears, to to contribute individually for the collective good. Ways that social movement leaders do this is by sometimes like literally paying people to protest, although I think the extent to which that happens is is far overstated in common discourse, but they might also provide like a t-shirt at the event or some kind of social confirmation like rewards for your being there. A claim um, is really valuable in social movements. Because most activists are not paid, they trade in social cachet, in honor, and People in the middle class have a disproportionate ability to confer that kind of recognition in a public way. And so that's what middle class protest leaders can lend to the rank and file who might otherwise struggle to rise up together. But on the other hand, the middle class leaders also need the rank and file in order to fill the streets. Because one defining characteristic of African political economy today is that the middle class is rising, but it's still a really tiny proportion of populations. And therefore, the middle class cannot fill the streets by itself like it can in Brazil or Ukraine or the US or Egypt. So middle class leaders must, if they want to fill the streets, which is necessary to move history, reach across class lines and cultivate support from people with grievances very different from their own. And so I think it it might be tempting to look at this class relationship as an exploitative one, right? Like the middle class leaders are using the lower classes to advance their narrow political interests, but that's not necessarily the case. Because in order to recruit the lower classes, 
the leaders need to fold bread and butter issues into their activities, and so it becomes a diverse protest coalition. Mm-hmm. Protests are things that, even with organization, they're things that things evolve rapidly on the ground. There's a lot going on in those moments. There's a lot of activity. Occasionally there's violence. There's all sorts of things. And I'm wondering, as someone who's studying something like this, what kind of methods do you do you use to study something like a protest? That seems like it would be a very hard thing to pin down and, and know exactly what's going on there. Ah, well, <laughs> I will definitely take that bait. I have a profound interest in the methods of studying protests as well as in answering questions about protests. And fortunately for listeners, the but maybe unfortunately for social movement scholars, the methods that we often use to study protests are fairly low tech. Um, and the main reason being that in order to understand people's thought processes, their political attitudes and preferences, we often rely on surveys, which is not the sexiest method, but there are very few windows into the mind. And sometimes I think that neuroscience is the frontier of social movement research and that perhaps um, you know, I, I should partner with a neuroscientist or you know, certainly social psychologists have for a long time been at the forefront of studying individual participation in movements and the leadership of movements. But short of putting activists in MRIs, which in fact some of my colleagues have done, although I cannot feasibly do that in the streets of Dakar, you know, we, we can't watch which parts of someone's brain light, light up when they are in the streets. Nor can we do that for people who choose to stay home. And that's important to make those comparisons between participants and non-participants when we're trying to explain participation. Therefore, we use surveys oftentimes. But the key is designing surveys to overcome the typical pitfalls of survey research, which in social movements is often bandwagoning effects. So if I survey people who joined a protest five years after the event, and let's say this is a protest that had some role in ousting a, you know, a nasty dictator, folks tend to want to be on the right side of history. And they might claim, oh, well, why, yes, I was there hand-in-hand hand with my comrades, you know, fighting to defend the Constitution. When, in fact, that might simply be false. Or this individual might post-hoc rationalize a larger role than they actually filled. Or maybe they even forgot why they were there or, or whether they were there, for that matter. A, you know, a, a, social, a social psychologist and economist won the Nobel Prize for explaining why we struggle to answer seemingly simple questions on surveys. It turns out that we don't understand exactly how our own brains work. And that will always impede attempts to understand how protests work. So one way of getting around this is by conducting surveys as close to the moment of the action as we can. The gold standard for surveys and protests is to conduct them while the protests are unfolding. It's difficult to do that because sometimes protests seem fairly spontaneous, although they often, almost always involve a lot of planning behind the scenes. It's tough to know in advance when they're going to occur. And so what I try to do if I don't know in advance is to conduct the survey as close afterwards as I can within the next year if possible. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, that image of 
I know you talked you talked about it a little bit in your your seminar at the Institute for Advanced Study, but that image of it's a striking image of just imagining someone going out in the group of protesters and trying to understand in the heat of that moment why are you here right now? And like you said, maybe sometimes people not even completely understanding themselves why exactly or the most important reason that brought them there if it was a host of reasons. Um, it's an interesting image of scholarship and I think one maybe that we don't always think of. I think mean, that's, that's, that's really right. cool. And, and if you give someone two hours to contemplate your question, their answer very well yeah. may change. Unfortunately, many of the protests that most interest me are not ones where it would be very practical or even safe to conduct surveys within the protests. There is a sociologist, Dana Fisher, who has done some really impressive surveying within protests in the United States, including at the March for Our Lives and at the Women's March. But if I want to go and do something similar in a protest um, under an armed dictatorship, that is probably not going to be right. viable. Yeah. yeah. So no methods are perfect. Social science is inherently messy. We have really high levels of uncertainty. Some people might give up as a result and say, you know, can we ever understand what makes humans behave the way they can? I, I tend to remain optimistic about it and just hope that we can push ourselves harder all the time as social scientists to hone our tools more, right. to maybe never get we'll certainly never get to absolute certainty. That's the only certainty we have, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. But to asymptotically approach yeah. better certainty. So and I, I think this follows well from that. The project you're working on while in residence here, it's a really logical progression from your first book, and it's looking at whether protests that are more cohesive produce different outcomes than ones that are less cohesive in terms of the group of people protesting. How do you, is it the same, is, is it just how you're tailoring your survey tool to try and understand, or how do you define how cohesive a group of people is? Yeah, so in this first book, I found that crowds are diverse, they don't have a single mind. Some of them have members who share interests more than other groups, and that level of cohesion exists along a spectrum. It's a continuous measure, it's not binary. So rather than talking about a cohesive crowd versus a non-cohesive crowd, we can think about, for example, the percentage of people in that crowd who share the same priority. There might be two protests on two different days, nominally about protecting the environment, for example. But in the first protest, two-thirds of the people there prioritize environmental change first and foremost. If you ask them on a survey to rank their political interests, the environment is at the top. Whereas in the second protest, maybe only a quarter of people rank the environment as their top concern, and they care about other things, about the economy, about foreign policy, etc., etc. Even though the media might be portraying both of these protests as protests for the right. environment. And, and that's what's deceptive about headlines. It's something I hope to underline in both projects that there's this reporting bias because the spokespeople are the ones who determine the framing of these movements. But when we peel the layers of the crowd, we can see this continuous variation of cohesion. So then the question in the second project. Does that cohesion matter for the outcomes of protests? Is a protest more successful if more of its members share their interests? There, the hypotheses go different ways on that. 
the intuition for most folks is that more cohesion is better. Well, I, I loved it. In, in, <laughs> in your background for your seminar, you cited all these different sources throughout history, the whole united we stand, divided we fall, and it was from the Bible and Abraham Lincoln to Mao Zedong to Tupac, which yeah. I let, like, and that, and you're right, I mean, that's, I think our minds just default to that, like, oh, a group of people, the more they have in common, the more effective they're going to be, and that begged the question to me, what might be some of those situations where you could say, okay, maybe, maybe this is an advantage of being less cohesive? Yeah, yeah, well, you're right, the diverse leaders of movements, the ones you cited, have reinforced this intuition that cohesion is better. But we also hear in popular discourse the opposite intuition. There are plenty of individuals who who value diversity for its own sake, who, who like to think that diverse organizations have more ideas they can bring to the table. This is a really common concept in, in business environments. Like, we should diversify our work teams so that we can diversify our thoughts in this marketplace of ideas. So I want to entertain both of those possibilities, as well as the possibility of no relationship. Like, maybe the cohesion of crowds just doesn't matter in terms of the ultimate outcomes of a social movement or protest. And I think that all three of those are, are plausible. When we consider the mechanisms, there might be several. So why might more cohesion lead to better protest outcomes? It could go back to those coordination and cooperation problems from before. If we're all on the same page about our goal, we already share some crucial information for making our movement work. And maybe if we're all sharing priorities, we will cooperate better too because we feel like we're members of the same political, ideological community. And there is some existing research showing that when people are members of the same community, say the same ethnic community, they do contribute more to the collective cause. Regarding mechanisms for diversity helping protests succeed, I think one reason might be that movements that, that manage to form despite different interests, might be stronger already. There might be strong leadership that helps them overcome any disagreements, and that might lead to success. And then the last, you know, least exciting possibility that maybe cohesion just doesn't matter, I think it's plausible because there are all sorts of identity cleavages that can lead people to be more or less effective when they rise up together. And maybe their political interests just aren't one of those. Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe their ethnic identities or their religious identities or their, the language they speak matter more. And these are all empirical questions that, that I hope to ascertain. I also want to raise the perspective of the targets of these protests. So far, we've only talked about the people right. perpetrating the protests. <laughs> perpetrating sounds like a negative Right. connotation, um, but the people enacting the protest. But from the standpoint of, say, an incumbent leader, maybe all that matters is bodies in the street. Like, you know, I don't care whether they share interests or not. I just care whether there are hordes of people outside the presidential palace. And they're angry. <laughs> they're <laughs> they're angry. angry with me about something. Right, right. So in the project that you're working on now, one of the things that you talked about that you hope to contribute with it is this idea of an expansive concept of what protest is. What do you mean by that? What are you talking about when you say an expansive concept of protest? Well, I would ask the listeners to think about all the options at their disposal when they're upset about something. 
So think about just any, and that that is an observation that has puzzled social movement scholars for generations. This the fact that almost all of us are pissed off about something. Can I say that yeah, on you this can, program? We're I, all pissed I, off about I something. I think that's okay. Yeah. At least one thing. When I teach yeah. classes, I ask students to, to raise their hands if they're angry about something in politics or otherwise. All the hands go up. But then when I ask how many of you have protested about that in right. the past 12 months, whatever protest means for you, most of the hands go down. And mind you, I'm a professor at McAllister College, <laughs> one of the most politically active campuses in the country. So therefore the puzzle arises. Why are grievances so ubiquitous and protest behavior so right. rare? So that goes back to the, the collective action problems. But let's contemplate in response to your question, the options people have for protesting, even if they don't actually use these options. Hypothetically, what could they do to act on their grievances and remedy them? Well, the obvious way is to take to the streets. That's what many people imagine when they think about protests. Right. But they can also write to a lawmaker. They can start a fundraising campaign. They can stage a boycott. They can start a, an armed rebellion. I am a scholar of comparative politics, and many of my colleagues who work on really similar questions study armed rebellions. Yeah. And it's kind of frightening to think that there are few functional differences in the workings of a peaceful social movement and a violent armed rebellion. They all have grievances and goals. They all have varying levels of cohesion. They all face coordination and cooperation problems, but their tactics are different. Right. And sometimes the differences blur even more when, when there are violent protests. And so in my new work, I want to look at these different facets of protesting. Not only how the cohesion of street protesters matters for the ultimate outcomes of those protests, but also whether or not cohesive activists write letters to lawmakers that are more likely to elicit responses from those lawmakers, whether activists who share political priorities are more willing to give up part of their own resources to one another. And that's why this needs to be a book and not one paper. <laughs> right. No, I was going to say, that's a, that's a big topic and that's a lot to, lot to get through. Yeah. One of the things from your seminar that I thought was really interesting, and I know it's something you're kind of working through right now, but you talked about this idea of wanting to determine what's a good outcome of a protest. And I use good in quotation marks because I realize that could be kind of a contentious term if you're defining something that is a good outcome. So I'm wondering, how do you define that? Does it involve making an ideological commitment up front that these are outcomes that I'm saying for the purposes of this, I would categorize these as, as good, or is good simply a synonym for something like effective or successful or something like that? Well, disclaimer, <laughs> I am an empiricist, and I don't, on a daily basis, contemplate questions about good and bad. Um, that's largely the domain of philosophers and theologians and historians who happen to comprise the majority of the other fellows at the Institute where I'm working this year. I wanted to tap their minds and avail myself of this almost utopian interdisciplinary environment to consider the normative implications of my empirical work. 
This is a question I encounter almost every time I face an audience of policymakers. I do a lot of consulting for American government um, agencies, and when I go to present on the determinants of protest, I get some pushback. Why are you telling us about the causes of protest? What we, the policymakers, want to know is what are the good protests and what are the bad ones? And which ones should we what, be supporting and, and, and which ones should worry? And us? I was going to say that because I know, and that was going to be my follow up to this was it was interesting to me that policymakers are asking you that because I think it's an interesting thought to think of a policymaker wanting to know what protest is good and what protest is bad because I think as as a citizen looking at them, you're thinking okay, they have a set of beliefs, and if I happen to disagree with those beliefs, I'm trying to influence them to come around to my way of thinking, or if I think their state of beliefs are in line, I'm trying to keep their state of beliefs in line. But this suggests more of kind of looking at like, okay, is, is there kind of a sea change coming here? Do I need, to, I need to figure out which of these protests is worth listening to and which isn't worth listening to, and maybe that has, and maybe this just sounds naive on my part, that has a lot more to do with what I think is the right thing to do or not, and maybe has more to do with what's going to keep me in office, and that's how I—that's what I should pay attention to. Yeah, policymakers make normative judgments every day. Yeah. <laughs> we could go down a whole rabbit <laughs> yeah. hole on that topic, and those decisions are going to happen whether I grapple with them or not. And so I feel somewhat of responsibility to at least consider them. I will not will myself to become a philosopher. I, you know have only so many years in my scholarly life. Um, and that's why I'm really keen to collaborate with people whose life work is more normative. While keeping in mind that the policy decisions about the good and bad protests, which protests policymakers might support, which they might ignore or even usurp, is always going to be highly risky. So a philosopher might be able to tell us, well, this is the definition of the good life and by extension the good protest and this is the definition of the bad, but there's still some probability attached to the outcome of an ostensibly good or bad protest. And we've seen ex dramatic examples of that uncertainty unfold in, for example, Syria. And any time foreign intervention happens... It's, it's a gamble, and it's very politically contentious, and I don't tread into those waters without a heavy dose of trepidation. I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm, I'm promoting a particular agenda well, to like arm the rebels well, or to you know usurp the rebels, but I, I will venture to say that foreign policy in the United States and among Euro European countries tends to be really risk-averse today in the sense that protest movements are often feared, considered to be violent troublemakers, um, which frankly is a double standard because many non-governmental organizations are highly eligible for aid, even though the, the difference between the typical NGO and the typical social movement is really vague. Mm -hmm. Plenty of NGOs engage in activism, and plenty of social movements are less corrupt and represent popular interests better than some NGOs that are often staffed by elites. Right. Right? Right. Um, and so I just want to kind of nudge policymakers to consider whether some social movements might be agents for positive change, and if, therefore, they ought to be more eligible for support. 
but it's always a gamble. Well, I, and I, I got a, I, I think I got a good window into that kind of that kind of gamble because when it kind of opened up for questions, it was during the seminar. People say, "Whoa, okay, don't." I mean, it was immediate. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't think you want to go down that. Don't use the word good. Like, stay, <laughs> like, stay away from that at all costs because that's what people are gonna yeah. latch on to or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's. Well, I've been thinking really about that in the weeks after my presentation, and um, in, in in hallway water cooler conversations with some of my colleagues, I've thought that maybe this is a, a question, the one about good and bad, to confront in an edited volume. Oh, Whereas yeah. some of the contributors are philosophers, some of right. them are empiricists. And then in the meantime, in my own work, to talk not in terms of good and bad, but in terms of effectiveness and ineffectiveness. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. taken as given the goals of, the nominal goals of a protest, what would bring those goals to fruition? Right. And then leave it to readers to determine whether they like those goals right. or not. Right. It's, it's not necessarily for me to decide. Lisa Mueller, thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure having you It's been a pleasure. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.